0: do turn back to Revelation chapter 1 and we're going to look at that as we begin this new series in these uh, letters to the church. I think we call this Royal Mail, letters to the churches, but we don't actually get into those letters which are in chapters 2 and 3 uh, for a couple of weeks. You um, looking forward to having some other people preaching some of these sermons in the evening as well, um, starting next week with David Ashman um, and a few others after that as well. And let me just sort some things out here and get the right things in the right place. Let's pray then as we look at Revelation chapter one. Father, thank you that you are a speaking God, and you show us what's really going on in our world and in heaven. And thank you for this book, these extraordinary words. We pray that through what we read here, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes so we see clearly what is ultimate reality. And pray that that would draw us to worship Jesus with our whole lives we pray in his name amen fantastic well you have heard of pi and maybe you've heard of e and i not meat pie and old macdonald e i e i o but the mathematical constants and imaginary numbers pi e i but there's this new number we all need to know about isn't there and that is the number R. Now R isn't a constant, it changes, it's the effective reproduction number of the COVID-19 virus. The number of people, one infected person on average is expected to infect. If it's less than one, we breathe a sigh of relief, we open the schools, we ride the tube or, or maybe something like that. If it's greater than one, we are in trouble. If it hits four or five, as it did before we entered lockdown, without intervention, then we are heading for disaster faster than a compound interest credit card bill. R in London is, I think, down at 0.4, the last time I saw anything about it, which is uh, less than much of the rest of the country. And uh, people have debated why that is. Uh, possibly because two million people in London have already had the illness, which actually makes it harder to pass on. Uh, But we don't actually know for sure. In fact, there is a lot that we don't know. What will happen when we open the schools? Can we think about um, gathering physically for church uh, in July or later? Or are we just going to head straight back into lockdown as soon as things open up? How are we going to get out of this? By contact tracing. You know, if you work for the gig economy, they say, you know, is it, is it in your interests to keep your Bluetooth on your phone and listen to an app telling you to stay home for two weeks and earn no money? Is social distancing really going to work in schools? Will we find a vaccine? It's easy to feel in the end that no one really knows what is going on. You know, can we trust the government, and the experts? Do we have any choice? It's all rather bewildering. Where is God in all of this? A few weeks ago, when we entered lockdown, a friend of mine commented that COVID-19 would function like an apocalypse, a revelation. Now, by that, he didn't mean uh, he thought the end of the world was coming. He meant something slightly different. He meant that uh, an apocalypse and a revelation, they're, they're actually the same word from different, you know, one's the Greek root word and one's the Latin root word. Apocalypse, revelation, these two words mean the same thing. And they're the same as the word in verse one in the book of Revelation that we, we heard Liz read for us. And this book is sometimes called Apocalypse. We hear those words and we think end of the world, you know, we, and we think of people with um, placards and billboards sort of shouting in the street. Um, but a, a, a revelation, an apocalypse is simply a revealing, an uncovering. Now, my friend said COVID-19 is going to be a, uh, an apocalypse. It's going to be a revelation. And what he meant was it would peel back the outward veneer that we all have of having everything sorted and comfortable. And it would help us to see what ought to have been Uh, clear all along. The reality that our lives are frail, that very little is certain, that comfort is a luxury. All of these things, he was saying, COVID-19 is going to reveal those things to us, to show us what's really going on. And actually, that's a helpful illustration because it helps us to see what is going on in this book with the title, revelation and that first word in the book the revelation of Jesus Christ it's peeling back not just our lives it's peeling back heaven itself so we can see into heaven and we can see what's really going on where is God when his people are suffering what is going on the book of revelation wants to reveal that to us Now, as I said before, the the book of Revelation for many is a scary book. It's an unknown book, David said before. It's a confusing book for some. It's had a very mixed and confused reception over the last 2000 years. Um, We're very unfamiliar generally with what, what they call the genre of this book, the genre of literature. It's it's a sort of, you know, the, the genre means, you know, is it narrative? Is it poetry? Well, this type of literature is called apocalyptic literature. It's got its own genre label. And actually, it was relatively common as a type of writing at the time that it was written. And you can find other um, examples of it, even in the Old Testament, um, in, in Daniel, in Ezekiel, in Zechariah. Um, it wouldn't have been so odd to its first readers. But that's not been the case so much since then. So so Martin Luther wrote that uh, he was unsure whether it should even be in the Bible um, because he couldn't see Christ in the book, though he later changed his mind and realised Jesus was everywhere to be seen. More recently, Rowan Williams, the the former Archbishop of Canterbury, has described parts of the book as he said, page after page of paranoid fantasy and malice, like the letters clergymen so frequently get from the wretched and disturbed. Um, I'm not sure about that. But um, G.K. Chesterton had the best line when he um, commented that, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Now, I think he was onto something. And there are many wild and wacky interpretations of this book. But what is this book? Well, John, the author, tells us in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 9, after our reading, just afterwards, tells us that John, who wrote this, is a brother and companion in suffering with his readers. It's almost certainly the same John who wrote John's gospel, writing towards the end of his life in exile on the island of Patmos, writing to Christians who are also suffering. And what does he write to those suffering Christians? Well, verse 1, have a look, he he, he writes about what must soon take place, the visions he received from God. Verse 3, the time is near. He says, and that seems to be the basic message of this whole book. Understand, it's not always going to be like this. This this situation of suffering that you are in, things are going to change. Things are things are going to change soon. When when he says soon, um, if you look verse uh, verse one, and then you know the time is near. Verse three. What does he mean, do you think, by those words? The book actually ends in the same way. Right at the end of it, the, the last verses of the Bible, Jesus says, "I am coming soon." And it seems to mean there's nothing more that needs to happen before Jesus returns. So be encouraged and keep waiting. Keep waiting, because He is coming soon. Now, this, um, these first eight verses that we've heard read, they're, they're basically an introduction to the whole book. And they, they sort of introduce some of the themes. The, the first three verses that, that we've just glanced at um, already tell us that this is a vision from God the Father, given to Jesus, who sent an angel, uh, verse 1, who, who spoke to John. Now, we learn in verse 10, we'll see next week, that he was in the Holy Spirit, the message has all the authority in the universe of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and an angel thrown in for good measure. You can trust this. You need to listen, John is saying. And then verses four to eight um, introduce John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, if you just read um, verses four to six by themselves those first couple of, well, those middle couple of verses there, you, you, you might think you were reading one of the other New Testament letters, like Romans or Colossians or something, you know, in the way that they, they sort of write and they say who they are and they say who they're writing to and they have some introductory words. And uh, that, 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 that helps us to understand this book is still a letter with a message. It's not a confused ramble, as people sometimes think it might be. This is a letter with a message. And those churches in Asia that he mentions that he's writing to are, are then addressed in detail over chapters two and three. And we'll see those over the next few weeks. But what becomes clear is that those churches that he writes to in chapters two and three are a mixed bag. Some are going well. Some are struggling. Some are suffering at the hands of external persecution. Some are suffering because of sin amongst them. Most are experiencing a mixture of all those things and actually that's not all that different from us today in different times and in different ways they're probably one step further on overall from the situation of the christians in one peter Uh, persecution under nero and the romans appears to be happening in a way that it wasn't happening uh, yet in one peter they were just on the brink before that so if you're following in in one peter in the morning you might be aware of that but uh, this suffering is happening. It's painful for them. Some of them have died. Some of them are really realizing they need to persevere. But whenever we're suffering, for whatever reason, whether through persecution or, or through the effects of living in a fallen world because of a virus or, or anything else, really, we need to hear what is really going on in heaven, what is really going on in the throne room. And so that is what John is writing to this suffering church, to these suffering Christians. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, who are the seven spirits? You know, I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. Well, there is. So it's probably not the Holy Spirit. Chapters four and five talk about seven lamps and seven eyes who are the seven spirits and this is an uh, opening we'll, we'll see more of it later in the, in the book but this is opening a little window into the way Revelation uses symbols it's a very symbolic book this is part of being this this genre of literature that i talked about uses symbols so you've got to you've got to get away from the idea of trying to paint a a sort of artist's um, impression of what's going on here as if you could get your paintbrush out and draw exactly what John says and that's particularly clear later on when you get loads and loads and loads of images piled on top of each other and uh, you know it's not that you're supposed to kind of go now hang on a minute how does the throne work where are the seven angels are they definitely seven angels what are they it's all, it doesn't quite work like that. Symbols stand for things. They're symbolic, they're um, significant. And so for a start, numbers are very symbolic and very significant. So the number seven, if you follow that through the book of Revelation, you find it seems to refer to things which are complete, things which are perfect Seven spirits. Well, we can't be totally sure exactly what's meant, but you know, again, compare with chapters four and five, they may just be um, angels before the throne, his messengers. Um, But then we get something extraordinary for a first century audience. Alongside this vision of God on his throne, we see separate from him, but alongside him, we see. Jesus Christ. And one of the striking things and really exciting things about the book of Revelation is the unambiguous status that is given to Jesus in this book. And again, chapters four and five, you get to the throne room again, and we see in more detail this mind-blowing description of God in his throne, and everyone's worshipping him. But then in chapter five, alongside him, alongside everyone worshipping God, what are they doing? They're worshipping The lamb, the one who looks as if he had been slain. Now, think back if you're in the first century and you're reading this, whether you're from a monotheistic Jewish background or a polytheistic Roman background, in other words, Jewish people believe one God, the the Romans had their kind of what we call polytheism, the pantheon, which means they had loads and loads of different gods. So you're either from a one God background or a many, many, many God background, but both of them would have found this really, really striking. Because on the one hand, to those who believe in in, in, who've been brought up with monotheism, here they see the one God and they go, Oh, yeah, that sounds like the God of the Old Testament. And then alongside him is somebody who's treated exactly like him. Jesus is being worshipped as God. What is going on? And then to the Romans what they're going to be challenged by is, you know, they've got all their many gods and they're they're finding that okay, they might have been sort of used to the idea that one of their emperors, for example, would die and become a god. That was sort of in their their consciousness as something that, that, that might happen. But not that there is the one true god who is revealed truly not in the Roman and Greek gods, but only in the crucified Jesus Christ. Again, to them, that, the crucified Jesus Christ, the one who died on a cross, what a ridiculous scandal. Crucifixion is the worst possible punishment. It's taboo. We don't talk about it. And you're saying the God you worship is revealed through that God, um, that, that God man who was crucified. That's ridiculous. So th- this is helpful because it reminds us the idea of worshiping Jesus as God isn't something that Christians dreamt up, you know, or monks in the Middle Ages suddenly had this bright idea. Now, this has always been the practice of Christians since the very earliest days. Worshiping Jesus as God, the one seated on the throne next to the God of the universe father son and holy spirit and so the the book of revelation puts jesus at the center of everything it's all about him and then in verses four to eight which we're going to look at in slightly more detail now there are three things to highlight that john says about this jesus on whom everything is focused to encourage suffering Christians, and they give a flavour of the rest of the book. So here are the three things that he says about Jesus to get us into what this book is about. Jesus is Lord of the earth, he's Lord of the church, and he's Lord of history. He's Lord of the earth, Lord of the church, Lord of history. So let's see those three things in slightly more detail before we finish then. He's Lord of the earth verse 5. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, when the government uh, are putting you in prison or taking your, away your home or putting you in front of a firing squad, you know, think of if you, if you joined us this morning, you would have seen we zoomed around the world on the around the world tour and we ended up seeing um, a concentration camp in North Korea. On Google Earth, and just you can you can just see them there. They are, and you can see all the buildings. You can see them, and you can imagine there are Christians down there, and they are in prison, to uh, because they believe in Jesus. This is daily life. This is reality for them. Think of what his life is like for them. If that is if that, if that is your daily experience, you need to know that Jesus is the faithful. Witness, what does that mean? That it, t- it means that he stood firm in the face of the suffering that he faced. You know, he suffered too, he was persecuted too, if you like. And then that he defeated death as the firstborn from the dead. So, do you know what? Even if you're in prison, <clears throat> even if you're in prison for your faith, not even death can harm you, and therefore. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So, again, think of, you know, just think of brothers and sisters in North Korea, just to take that example. Everything there is designed to tell you that King Jong Un is the supreme leader to whom you must give ultimate allegiance in everything. That's kind of the whole state is set up to tell you that. So, again, you need to know no, no, no. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Kim Jong-un answers to Jesus, even death answers to Jesus, that is what John is saying here, even the death and havoc unleashed by COVID-19. You know, think of, think of the way that Jesus healed people with a word and raised the dead with a touch. He's in control. Your greatest enemies have been defeated, so take heart. That is the first thing we need to see here. Jesus is Lord of the earth. Then we see Jesus is Lord of the church. So verses five and six to him, it says verse end of verse five to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father to him be glory and power forever and ever think how easy it is when you're suffering to turn in on yourself, to become unable to think beyond the here and now, the pain that you're in. You know, I expect that many of us feel that in different ways at the moment. Think what happens to couples and families and households, your relationship with, you know, people that you live with, whoever they are, you know, when you're suffering. It's been reported, sadly, China, saw an increase in divorce rates as soon as lockdown began to ease and I'm sure that will be reflected elsewhere tragically. Think what happens when a whole church is suffering. A whole group of people turn in on themselves and as a result factions form, people blame each other for the problems that they face and things fall apart. Now I'm not saying that's happening to us as a church, praise God, but it's the sort of thing that could so easily happen whether we fall out over how and when to return from lockdown, you know, in what way we should do it, we all have different opinions. Or or otherwise, we just simply lose patience with one another through tiredness and frustration with the whole situation. We need to know we have a new identity, that we are loved, that we're free from the penalty of our sin because of Jesus. We are free to serve God together. Only Jesus can hold a group of suffering Christians together and turn them from isolated moaning and discouragement to joyful service and love for one another and for God. It's true for us individually. It's true for us in uh, families and, and, and marriages and households. It's true for us in the church. Only Jesus can do that, who suffered, who knows what it is to suffer, who died and rose and is now our Lord, if we turn away from ourselves and turn to him, he can unite us. He is the Lord of the church. Finally, Jesus is the Lord of history. Verses seven and eight. There is a day coming when God will judge the world. He will judge the rulers. He will judge those who killed Jesus and who now kill his followers. And the judge will be Jesus himself. You know, we look around us and we easily conclude, don't we, that that evil gets the last word. Whether it's, um, you know, in Iraq, I don't know if you've seen this, you've noticed this in the news. <clears throat> as the government in Iraq focuses on fighting COVID-19 like everyone else, tragically ISIS, Islamic State, is taking the opportunity to rise again in Iraq, even now we hear. Uh, Andrew White, the so-called vicar of Baghdad, um, described it as ISIS returning on steroids. You know, Remember, the aim of ISIS is to plant their flag on the top of St Peter's in Rome and even St Paul's Cathedral in London. And we look closer to home and what do we find? You know, as this crisis is going on, we find, we, we, we hear of scammers preying on the vulnerable, people deliberately coughing in the face of key workers, spreading fear instead of hope. We need to know there is a day coming when wrongs Will be put right. Every eye will see him, it says here. It's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? Every eye, you, me, the ISIS fighter, and our next door neighbor who is happily living as an atheist, and even those who pierced him, he says. Focusing, I mean, he's not just focusing on the Romans and the Jews who who, who put him to death there in history, but also throughout history, those who have persecuted his body, the church. Do you remember when, you know, when he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me as Saul persecutes his people? He takes the insult personally. All the peoples of the earth will mourn. They will mourn their sin. They will mourn their rebellion because of him, he says, verse 7. At the centre of history is Jesus as crucified saviour and at the end of history all eyes will be on him as judge what a shocking thing to say on him on him what a shocking thing to read in the first century what a shocking thing for us to read now jesus not just a swear word not just somebody you can dismiss but the one who will judge the world And so verse eight is a bit like the the voiceover at the end of a political advert. You know, I am God and I approve of this message. It's all about Jesus. One preacher sums up the message of the book of Revelation like this. The lamb wins. That's what you need to know in the book of Revelation. So take heart, suffering Christian. We may not know the value of R. We may not know what's happening tomorrow, We may not know what's happening next month. We may not know what's happening next year. But we do know what is happening behind the scenes. Behind the scenes stands the one who is the Lord of the earth, the Lord of the church and the Lord of history. It's all about Jesus. So let's trust him. Father God, we thank you for these words that we have Read here, and for how they encourage us to see beyond our circumstances and the difficulties of our life here and now, and to see the reality that Jesus is Lord of earth, of the whole earth, of the church, and of history. Pray that when we are discouraged, when we're fearful, when we're mourning, when we're sad when we're struggling may our confidence be entirely in this risen Lord Jesus and may we not be fooled by our circumstances around us may we always see clearly what is really going on in history and in this world we thank you for Jesus and we trust in him amen